in our passage tonight, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. We have a real idyllic portrayal of a king. This is the ideal king here in this passage. We see what he is like. He is a king who, as verse 19 says, fears the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. He is a humble king that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, verse 20. And he is a continuous king, a continuing king. He's a king with a long reign. If you have ever been under a government that you consider to be reasonably good, then it's very frustrating in the next election cycle when that government is removed and you just wish they could continue. In Deuteronomy 17, one of the blessings of being under this kind of a ideal king is that he continues long in his kingdom. And so there is this humble king who fears the Lord and rules and reigns well and continuously over the long term. The implication is that this is going to be for the flourishing of Israel. He is going to, under the old covenant structure, guard the people from covenantal curses and bring covenantal blessings. If there is a king who rules the land well and does righteousness and leads the land in righteousness, then remember there are blessings for obedience which they will experience under this righteous king's reign or curses for disobedience, which they will be spared from under this righteous king's reign. So this is the idyllic portrayal of a coming king. Who does it anticipate? You might guess my answer, but I'm going to keep you in suspense for some time. Let's wonder first. The institution of Israelite kings? In other words, the kingship itself? Yes and no. Yes, in that obviously this passage was written concerning Israelite kings. It was instructions about what the Israelite kings were to do, the kind of kings they were to be. It, this, is, this is a painting of a bullseye that the Israelite kings can aim at. This is a, a dartboard that the Lord hangs in the courtroom of the Israelite kings, so to speak, that they can throw their dart and really try to hit this mark. This is what they are to be. So in a sense, this passage anticipates the Israelite kings. But obviously, there's no way that God anticipated that the Israelite kings would actually be like this. This, this isn't... God saying, man, it's really looking hopeful because I'm going to give them instructions about this, which surely they will follow. And surely the kings really will be these kinds of men. And then the Israelites will live happily forever after in the land of Canaan under idyllic kings. Obviously, there's a sense in which this sort of 
helps us to anticipate the coming Israelite kings. Because remember at this time, they weren't led by a king. We're still at Sinai. And they're being led by Moses out of Egypt and into the promised land eventually. But they still don't have a kingship. So in a sense, this passage anticipates the coming kingship. But in a sense, we're going to have to look a ways past the coming kingship of the Israelites before we find someone who truly fits the bill here. So, obviously we know that the first Israelite king was Saul. And he was not the high point of Israelites' kingship. But there are a few men who we might say were pretty good. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, David is pretty familiar, so is Solomon. We'll talk about them a little bit more later. But let me just read just a couple of little things from Second Chronicles about these other lesser-known men. In Second Chronicles 29, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah cleanses the temple, is the next heading in our ESV Bibles. Hezekiah restores temple worship, is the next heading after that. Chapter 30, Passover celebrated which it hadn't been after it was instituted as they left Egypt. It had apparently not been celebrated hardly at all after that. Hezekiah did a number of good things here. And then in 2 Chronicles 34, we read about Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. This would be like if we had King Max ruling over us as he's due to have his eighth birthday uh, in the next number of months here. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Listen to this. For in the eighth year of his reign, so how old was he? If he started reigning when he was eight, 16. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, so how old was he? Twenty. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So this was a zealous young man. 
he took on the um, powers that be in Israel, though he was the king. I think we've all seen heads of state who don't seem to have the political will to oppose other powerful figures in the nation. But Josiah did. Obviously, there were pagan priests in the nation which were influential. And obviously, lots of people went out to them. So he acted presumably against popular opinion. And he acted courageously in uh, defying these people and basically smashing their temples. In, in fact, even going so far as it says here, to burn the bones of the priests on their altars, which implied that he killed them first. So Josiah seriously cleaned house. So we know David, we know Solomon, there's Hezekiah, there's Josiah. There's a couple of other guys mentioned. We have less detail on them, so I didn't mention them tonight, but there were some good kings. Were they sort of God's plan? And Deuteronomy 17, when he describes the idyllic king, was the Lord thinking like, yeah, I know some of these guys are going to miss the mark, but shoot for the moon, and at least if you miss, you're going to land among the stars. And, you know, David will be close, Solomon will be close, and Hezekiah will be close, and Josiah will be close. No. The Lord never in the scripture is happy with close. And all of these men failed in various ways. It's, it's true that they were more closely conformed to the archetype that were given in Deuteronomy 17 than some of the other wicked kings were. But these men all failed. We know well of David's adultery and murder. So he... Um, slept with Bathsheba, who was another man's wife. And Uriah, this is a little bit of a lesser known thing, was actually one of David's mighty men. Which means that he was trusted by David. Probably means they were good friends. The way that presidents and prime ministers know and come into a, a trusting relationship with their closest bodyguards. And yet David betrays presumably his friend, at least definitely a trusted confidant, and has him killed. Hezekiah had an issue with pride, we're told. Josiah, probably something of the same. His death is interesting to read about. He goes out against one of the pharaohs of Egypt, and Pharaoh's like, no, 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 you go back to your land. My quarrel is not with you, it's with these people over here. But Josiah just fights anyway and then dies so presumably some some kind of pride or something but in any case not a perfect man and the most egregious of the failures actually is probably Solomon if you compare Deuteronomy 17 with 1 Kings 10 14 to 11 8 it is astonishing just how similar the content of these passages are, but in opposite ways. So Deuteronomy 17 basically says your kings are not supposed to do this. And then 1 Kings 10, 14 to 11, 8 basically is like, here's what King Solomon did. Listen as I read and bear Deuteronomy 17 
in mind. 1 Kings 10, beginning at 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, beside which, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests, and two lions standing beside the armrests. While twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules. So much year by year. Now just pause there for a second. And look at the end of Deuteronomy 17, 17. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. Well, I think if you ever came to my house and I had encoded the patio of my my, uh, house with pure gold, overlaid it with pure gold and put a golden lion on each side of the front steps of my patio, and you showed up, and there I was sitting on a throne of pure gold with a lion on each side, drinking out of a cup of pure gold. <laughs> you would think, well, this is really excessive. I don't think you can say that he was just, you know, moderately blessed of the Lord. <laughs> this guy was like, like truly balling. This is like opulent, opulence to the excess. Now, let's continue. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from eat What? Egypt? Well, let's go back. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16. Guilty on two counts. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Let us read on. 
and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now, the, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Wait a second here. And he shall not acquire many wives for... Oh, well, maybe he just loved them and didn't actually marry them. Let's see. Let's read on. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the, from, which, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Okay, so this must be unrequited love, where Solomon longs for them, but he knows the Lord said, don't marry these people of these nations. And after all, in Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king must not acquire um, uh, many wives for himself. So surely he doesn't marry them. Let's see what happens. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Wow, so he did absolutely, utterly go completely diametrically against what God had plainly said. Well, I wonder if his heart will turn away as the Lord indicated that it most likely would. Let's see. Oh, it says right here. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. Hmm. Okay. We could go on and keep reading, but you get the point here. He's basically doing literally the opposite. Literally the opposite of everything in Deuteronomy 17. So it's not like he it's not like he like slightly missed the mark. Like this is pretty much as egregious as you could possibly be in terms of how badly you could violate what is stated in Deuteronomy 17. And yet he is still considered to be a high point in Israel's kingship. Just think about that. So it's not really David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah that God has in mind. When he writes Deuteronomy 17 about the blessedness of a good king, he's not expecting that every Israelite king is going to be like that, nor is he really thinking that even the best kings are going to be the ultimate fulfillment of this kind of passage. Well... What about modern nation states then? Does the Lord have Prime Minister Motley in mind? Does the Lord have President Biden in mind? Does the Lord have the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in mind? Former. Okay, I'm out of the news loop. I looked it up even. Google lied to me. <laughs> Literally today? Okay. Well, all right. Fair enough then. I'm somewhat exonerated. Did he, pa- did he pass away or? Okay. It's complicated. All right. Former president or former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Not exactly. And this is going to be, this is going to come into play in future weeks. Um, 
While righteous governments ought to be informed by God's law, the purposes of God are not coming to pass ultimately through presidents and prime ministers. So the, fu- the, fu- the fullest fulfillment of this verse is not in modern nation states either. So it's not as if when God wrote Deuteronomy 17 that he was really hoping Saul would be like this and basically planning to bring his purposes to pass through Saul. Nor is it that God was really hoping that David or Solomon or Hezekiah would be like this and was really planning to bring his purposes to pass um, through them either. Nor was God envisioning a future period in which Prime Minister Mia Motley would be his chosen instrument who would conform to Deuteronomy 17 and bring this passage to fulfillment. Or President Biden or former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. We see throughout the history of Israel and also even in our modern world that even though there is such a thing as a bullseye, none of these people hit it. And so as Psalm 46 says, verses 3 to 6, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Deuteronomy 17 holds forth to us an idyllic portrayal of a ruler. But the kings of Israel as a whole don't fit the bill. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, even those guys don't fit the bill. And modern uh, politicians don't either. It is vain to think that somebody will finally arise who will fit the bill here in Deuteronomy 17 and bring about the kind of blessed... um, Estate where we will just enjoy living under a good, godly ruler, it is vain to hope that that will be anyone other than God's appointed king who would fit the bill exactly and entirely, who was anticipated in the giving of even commands like this, a prophet like Moses, a coming king, all of these things foreshadowed in uh, the Old Covenant, including even the laws themselves, which are always just, often merciful, and wisely rule over and regulate sin. All of these things anticipate someone who can bring the idealized version of life with God 
to pass. What we're going to need is a king who is like Solomon, but greater. Oh boy, the, I didn't write down the reference properly. Let me see if I can go from mind. Somehow the chapter and the verse got erased. My apologies. In First Kings, somewhere, it talks about under uh, Solomon's rule, everybody living under his own vine and under his own fig tree. And this was the this was a euphemism to describe the blessedness of life under Solomon's reign. That from Dan to Beersheba, um, from one end of the country to the other, there was prosperity and there was rest on all sides from uh, military adversaries. And so there was this blessed high point in the history of God's people. I want to turn you to a much later prophet, Zechariah, who talks about one who will give the high priest of Israel new clothes. I've preached on this before. You may have been there the day I did. If not, let me recap it briefly. There is a man named Joshua who is a real historical guy. And Zechariah sees him in a vision, standing before God with filthy garments, which is a problem because he was the high priest and the high priest had to have clean clothes. And since the high priest represented all the people, here's Joshua and in him, everybody whom he represents, clothed with filthy garments. And so this is problematic because neither he nor the people are going to be accepted by God. And somebody comes and gives Joshua clean clothes. In verse 8, I'm not expounding the whole passage, Zechariah chapter 3. In verse 8, this vision is interpreted this way. O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. And basically, what this is saying is there's a guy coming called the branch who is the one who is going to affect what just happened, this exchange of dirty clothes for clean ones. And this, obviously, we understand now to be the Messiah who takes away our dirty clothes and gives us clean ones in its place. And what does it say in verse 10 will be the result of the Messiah's work? In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so there will be 
One who will come whose reign will be reminiscent of Solomon's reign. But it will be even greater and even more blessed. As Jesus claimed for himself, one greater than Solomon is here. One like David, but greater. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 29, Peter is preaching and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, When God wrote Deuteronomy 17, he wasn't really crossing his fingers and hoping that any of the Israelite kings would do it. Saul, nor David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah after him. He wasn't envisioning that rulers of modern nation states would bring things to pass, um, which he had envisioned for his people all along. There is one who is appointed to be like Solomon, like David, but greater and better, namely Jesus. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. As it says here, you may not put one over you who is not your brother. Jesus never married while he was here let alone having excessive wives. And I am not the bride of Christ. And you as an individual are not the bride of Christ. We are the singular bride of Christ. So Jesus even now does not have many brides. He has one people that he is devoted to, that he is loyal to. Jesus does not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what does he do with his riches? Ascended back up into heaven, given the name that is above every name, clothed with glory and honor, The riches of the nations stream to him. We see in apocalyptic prophecy. But what does Jesus do? He turns around and shares it with us. Gives it back to us. Jesus is not one who hoards wealth. But Jesus is one who pours out wealth. 
When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, Deuteronomy 17 says, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Jesus is one who loves to do God's will. He compares it to food. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples wonder where he got this food. He says, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 10, in sacrifices and burnt offerings, you, you did not delight. But I have come to do your will. Jesus is one whose reign never ends. But he will rule and reign eternally. He's not one who's going to be voted out in the next election or conquered by his enemies. But rather, Jesus is going to be one whose dominion never ends. And we will live continuously in blessedness under him. So we need to understand this is the point for tonight. We need to understand that it wasn't God's purpose to bring the blessedness of God's people to pass through the old covenant kings. Nor is it God's purpose to bring the blessedness of God's people to pass through the kings of modern nation states. But rather it is God's purpose to bring the blessedness of his people to pass through a king foreshadowed, anticipated in the Old Covenant, but that shoe only really fits one, whom he has appointed, namely Christ Jesus, who is like David, like Solomon, who is a king appointed over God's people, but one who rules and reigns in conformity to that which God has designed and designated a king to be.